0: What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Nurse Ree, and you're tuning in to Forensic Nurse Files. This is an informative but fun true crime podcast that follows the careers of three forensic nurse examiners. You just want to note that this podcast uses foul language, some sarcasm, and contains descriptions of adult themes and violence that some people may find disturbing. So if you need support, please check the show notes or visit our website. Hey guys, it's Nurse Ree, and today I'm going to talk to you guys about one of the most important types of cases that we see in forensic nursing. And I say it's one of the most important types of cases because sexual assault cases really framed the way for forensic nursing. There's not a forensic nurse program out there that doesn't see sexual assault patients. And so I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of history, a little bit of background about how, say, nursing or sexual assault Nurse examiner programs came to be. So, according to the Office for Victims of Crime, the first SANE programs were established in Memphis, Tennessee in 1976, in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1977, followed by Amarillo, Texas in 1979. These nurses worked in isolation until the early 90s, so about 15 years of just those areas. In 1991, it blew up to about 20 known sane nursing programs in the united states so nurses saw that services to victims of sexual assault were inadequate and were not equal to the high standards of care provided to other emergency department patients sexual assault patients have specific concerns about contracting sexually transmitted diseases and becoming pregnant amongst other things. So nurses led the effort to provide better tailored services to victims seeking care after a sexual assault. Then in 1992, the International Association of Forensic Nurses was formed at a meeting of Saints at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. The formal organization of these nurses led to significantly better communication and collaboration among these concerned professionals. As a result of their efforts, forensic nursing was recognized as a nursing subspecialty by the American Nurses Association in 1995. Then in 1997, the Office for Victims of Crime, or the OVC, a component of the Office of Justice Programs at the U.S. Department of Justice, took an important step towards facilitating SANE program development by recognizing that initial research showed SANE programs provided better victim care and facilitated better forensic evidence collection. These findings resulted in OVC supporting the first SANE Development and Operation Guide. By 2016, there were more than 800 SANE programs in the United States, and today there are over 900. And so, there is an increased demand for sane nurses as sexual assault cases are on the rise and emergency departments become more and more overwhelmed. In our intro episode, we talked about how you can become a sane nurse if you're interested. Um, what you need is to already be a registered nurse, and then there are courses you can take. You can take the SANE A and SANE P, um, A standing for adult, and P for pediatric. There are courses that you take and then examinations for each of those so that you can become certified. Okay, so let's get into it. So per the CDC, the definition of sexual violence is sexual activity when consent is not obtained or freely given. Sexual violence can occur in person, online, or through technology, such as posting or sharing sexual pictures of someone without their consent or non-consexual sexting. And so ladies and gents, all those unsolicited dick pics y'all be getting and sending, that is sexual violence. And so there are many forms of sexual violence that I'm going to list off for y'all, but just for today's episode, we're just going to talk about sexual assaults. So there is rape or sexual assault, child sexual assault and incest, sexual assault by a person's spouse or partner, unwanted sexual contact or touching, sexual harassment, sexual exploitation and trafficking, exposing one's genitals or naked body to others without consent, masturbating in public, watching someone engage in private acts without their knowledge or permission, and non-consensual image sharing. So let's talk a little bit about consent and y'all know if Nurse Joy was here right now she'd be going crazy talking about consent. It's cool and mandatory but so according to RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, consent is an agreement between participants to engage in sexual activity. Consent should be clearly and freely communicated. A verbal and affirmative expression of consent can help both you and your partner to understand and respect each other's boundaries. Consent cannot be given by individuals who are underage, intoxicated, or or incapacitated by drugs or alcohol, or asleep or unconscious. If someone agrees to an activity under pressure of intimidation or threat, that isn't considered consent because it was not freely given. Unequal power dynamics such as engaging in sexual activity with an employee or student also means that consent cannot be freely given. So consent is more than just a yes or a no. It should be a dialogue about y'all's desires, your needs, and whatever level of comfort you have with different sexual interactions. And so I just wanna reiterate one more time, consent must be freely given and informed, and a person can change their mind at any time. So if you start engaging in sexual acts with someone and you suddenly feel like you don't want to do this and you revoke that consent, if they continue, that is now sexual violence and that is punishable by the law. And so you guys, I feel like we touched on this back in our domestic violence series, if I can remember correctly, but being married or being in a relationship does not give implied consent. You or your partner still have to get consent from each other before engaging in sexual acts. Nobody is anyone else's property. So there are so many reasons that essays are not reported and victims may choose not to report to law enforcement or even tell anyone about their assault for so many reasons. Um, some of the most common reasons can include a fear of not being believed, being afraid of retaliation, shame or fear of being blamed, pressure from others, distrust towards law enforcement, or a desire to protect the attacker for other reasons. And I just want to make it extremely clear for those of you who are listening who may be victims, victims are never at fault. So choosing to violate another person is not about drinking too much, being on drugs, trying to have a good time, getting carried away. And it's not about the clothes someone's wearing, how they were acting, how they were talking, or what type of relationship they have with the person who abused them. Somebody is actively making the choice to violate another person. And that is so key because a lot of times victims will come in and they'll feel like they did something wrong, but it is never the victim's fault. And so if y'all listened to the last episode, you heard me rant a little bit about the struggles we face in dealing with law enforcement sometimes and whether or not they believe the victim and the series of events or the story that the victim's telling. Here lately, I haven't run into any issues. It's been really, really great with the officers that I've come in contact with. But every now and then you do encounter um, those officers who are a little reluctant to believe. And the downside of this is that We can't run a kit without authorization from those officers. Well, technically, we can do the kit. It's just that law enforcement's not going to come pick up the kit, and they're not going to take the kit to the crime lab to be processed. So there has to be a case number, and there has to be authorization in order for these series of events to happen. A common misconception when it comes to essays is that they are random. Not to say that random assaults don't happen because they definitely do, but victims often know the person that assaulted them. Nearly three out of four adolescents, so that's about 74-75% who have been sexually assaulted were victimized by someone they knew well and one-fifth, so about 20-21%, were committed by a family member. A lot of times these perps have had these thoughts for a long time and they've studied their victim, they know their strengths and weaknesses, um, and so they get a feel for them before they commit the crime. But the crazy thing about all of this is how common this is. So over half of women and almost one in three men have experienced sexual violence involving physical contact during their lifetime. So over half of women and one third of men. That's wild. One in four women and about one in 26 men have experienced completed or attempted rape. About one in nine men were made to penetrate someone during their lifetime. One in three women and one in nine men experienced sexual harassment in a public place. And sexual violence starts very early. So more than four in five sexual assault victims have reported that they were first assaulted before the age of 25 and almost half were first assaulted as a minor. And as with almost all the cases that we see, sexual violence is not unique in that it disproportionately affects some groups. So women and racial ethnic minority groups experience a higher burden of sexual violence. And just an example for you all, more than two in five non-Hispanic American Indian or Alaska Native and non-Hispanic multiracial women were assaulted in their lifetime. So sexual violence is also costly. Recent estimates put the lifetime cost of S.A.s at over $122,000 per survivor, So that number can include medical costs, lost productivity, criminal justice activities, amongst other things. So when it comes to our victims of sexual violence that have disabilities, I do feel like we touched on that a little bit in our elder abuse, independent adult abuse episode, but I'm just going to touch on it really quick An estimated 2 in 5, or about 40%, of female victims of assault had a disability at the time of the sexual assault. Nearly 1 in 4, or about 25%, of male victims who experienced sexual violence other than sexual assault had a disability at the time of their victimization. For both women and men, having a disability was associated with an increased risk of sexual coercion. So pressured sex without physical force and non-contact unwanted sexual experiences. So harassed in a public place, made to penetrate, or view sexually explicit material. And then psychological aggression by an intimate partner as well. So sexual violence obviously impacts the victim themselves, but it also extends beyond the individual survivor and reaches all of society. The assault can impact the victim's daily life no matter when it happened. And each victim reacts to sexual violence in their own personal way. Um, Some common emotional reactions can include guilt, shame, you know, there's fear, numbness, shock, and feelings of isolation. There's also physical consequences. Um, Obviously, that's what we look for when we do our forensic exams. We look for bruising, genital injuries. We could see signs of STDs and not every forensic facility does STD testing. Some will just refer you to an outside facility, but obviously if we're in there, we can see signs of a sexually transmitted infection. And then there's also pregnancy. Some psychological effects can be depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. And then there's chronic like PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, um, reoccurring reproductive, gastrointestinal, cardiovascular, and sexual health problems. Then there's also the negative health behaviors such as smoking, alcohol abuse, drug use, and risky sexual activity. Y'all, that's just a brief list of the after effects that these victims have to deal with. There's so many more things, but those were just the most common ones. So the trauma from sexual violence can impact a survivor's employment in terms of time off from work, diminished performance at work, Job loss or inability to work, coping and completing everyday tasks after victimization can be challenging. Survivors may have difficulty maintaining personal relationships, returning to work or school, and regaining a sense of normalcy. It's like your whole world gets turned upside down. Sexual violence is also connected to other forms of violence. For example, girls who have been sexually abused are more likely to experience additional sexual violence and violent types and become victims of intimate partner violence in adulthood. Bullying perpetration in early middle school is linked to sexual harassment perpetration in high school. The impact of sexual violence extends beyond the individual survivor and reaches all of society, as I said before. So here's how it does that. The impact on loved ones. So sexual violence can affect parents, friends, partners, children, spouses, co-workers, and the survivor themselves. As they try to make sense of what happened, loved ones may experience similar reactions and feelings of those of the survivor, such as fear, guilt, self-blame, and anger. And I can tell you guys countless times that I've had a victim come in and I'm, um, you know, I'm assessing and I'm getting ready to do my exam and their family member or friend is just in tears, can't believe what happened. I mean, the parents will be a hot mess. It's just, it affects everybody. When it comes to communities, schools, workplaces, neighborhoods, campuses, and cultural or religious communities may feel fear, anger, or disbelief when essays happen in their community. There are financial costs to communities, including medical services, criminal justice expenses, crisis and mental health service fees, and the loss of contributions of individuals affected by sexual violence. So like I said, the financial burden I told you guys that number, over $122,000 per survivor, it, it just transcends through the community. And now for our risk factors. Y'all know there's always a hell of risk factors. So some individual ones, um, alcohol and drug use, lack of concern for others, delinquency, early sexual initiation, aggressive behaviors and acceptance of violent behaviors, um, hyper-masculinity, suicidal behavior, hostility towards women, some relationship ones, a family history of conflict and violence, emotional unsupportive family environment, a childhood history of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, um, poor parent-child relationships, particularly with fathers, uh, involvement in a violent or abusive intimate relationship. As far as the community goes, Poverty, lack of employment opportunities, just low socioeconomic status in general, um, general tolerance of sexual violence within the community, weak community sanctions against sexual violence perps. Societal factors can be societal norms that support sexual violence, societal norms that support male superiority and sexual entitlement, societal norms that maintain women's inferiority and sexual submissiveness. So just all those like like strict, rigid gender roles. Some protective factors. So these are things that can help to prevent Uh, Families where caregivers work through conflict, so having that healthy dialogue, emotional health and connectedness, academic achievement, empathy and concern for how one's actions affect the next. So really, it all boils down to being well-educated about essays and how they affect the community and the individual, just everyone involved. Having a healthy, open dialogue within families, not conforming to those strict gender roles and not being a witness or involved in violence at a really young age when it comes to doing our essay exams there's a couple of things that we have to keep in mind the first being whether or not law enforcement is going to approve the kit and in some units law enforcement is bringing them to you so you know the kit has already been approved but some units you have to actually call law enforcement and then they have to come speak to the patient before they're able to give you approval or not. The second being if it's an acute versus non-acute. And so that involves when the assault actually occurred. Acute, in most units, that means that the assault happened within the last five days. And that's about how long the evidence is still good for. And then non-acute, meaning it happened more than five days ago. And in some instances, you're still able to do a quote-unquote kit. It just won't be a complete kit. You won't have the swabs. And the reason that you won't have the swabs is because after five days, the evidence starts to degrade and it's no longer useful. Um, However, you still might be able to collect photo evidence. So you might still see any kind of physical injuries, um, and those can be documented as well. And again, it's always up to the patient. You just give them the information, and if they decide that they want to proceed, then you proceed. So then we'll also notify whatever agency we see fit that needs to be notified. So law enforcement is probably already notified by this point. If not, we notify them. And then if the patient is a minor or they're a minor that has witnessed an assault and is not necessarily the victim, we'll notify DCFS. We also always wanna make sure that our victim is waiting the least amount of time possible. So it kinda depends on what type of unit you're in um, or you're going to. If you're in a place where law enforcement is bringing the patient to you, then there might be less of a wait time unless you are backed up in the amount of kits that you have to do. Um, But if they're coming through the ER and then you still have to notify law enforcement and go through that whole process, You want to try to get that ball rolling as soon as possible because the longer a patient has to sit in the ER and wait for these services, the more likely they are to what we call elope, which just means to leave without getting the exam done and not report. Once the victim decides that they do want to go through this process, they have the choice whether or not to have an advocate. Some places call an advocate automatically and do not give a choice. And then the victim has the choice of whether or not they want the advocate to be present with them throughout the process. Um, and then some places they ask the victim beforehand, is this something that you would be interested in? So advocates provide emotional support. They give them a lot of information. They give them referrals. Um, they will take the hotline call. Then they'll come meet them at wherever, if say whether it be the hospital or the forensics unit, if it's separate from the hospital. They can explain the legal process to them and they can help them with basic needs like safe housing or maintaining employment they really empower the victim to make informed decisions and assure them that their voices are being heard then we would start getting into the actual exam itself so first we would get consent and then we would start the interview process and depending on where you are once again your process might be a little bit different so you might be in the room with the patient with law enforcement with social work or whoever else an advocate Whoever else may need to hear the interview might be present in the room, or you might be in an institution where it's just the nurse and the victim in the room, and whoever else needs to see the interview can be watching from another room. The interview may or may not be video and audio recorded, and then that is included in the kit, and law enforcement is able to take that to the crime lab with them. And like we've said before, there's so many questions that are asked during the interview. A lot of the questions are extremely intimate. They're very personal and it can make the patient extremely uncomfortable. So we really have to once again channel our trauma informed care and make sure that we're being extremely sensitive to the situation and making sure that everything is at the patient's discretion. If they don't want to answer something, we're not going to press them to answer it. You just move on. So then after the interview is concluded, we move on to the actual forensic exam. And so it depends on your agency. Once again, some places do just a standard exam where they do the same swabs, the same photos on every single patient. And then some places do a more focused exam where your exam is really detailed to what the patient told you was the series of events. And so the same concept that goes for the interview also applies to the exam. If there's a part that the patient says they don't wanna do or they want you to stop, then we respect that and keep moving and not in every instance is the patient going to remember the entire series of events or any of the details of the event and so in that instance we have what's called a loss of awareness protocol and when that happens it's just a generalized exam and there's multiple areas on the body and the genitalia that we're going to take photos of and swabs of and that's just a standard protocol So with each acute forensic SA exam, we do try to collect clothing. A lot of times the patient will come in still wearing the same clothing they were wearing at the time of the assault, which is great for us because that's our best bet to get as much DNA as possible off of the clothing. But sometimes they'll also bring in the clothing that they were wearing at the time of the assault. And so once again, each unit is kind of different. It depends on what your protocol is. Some places will have you collect all of the clothing. Some places it's up to the officer's discretion, but the clothing does get added onto the actual kit we also try to collect urine on everybody and then also depending on your agency you may or may not collect blood on everybody some try to do it on every single forensic exam and then some do it only if the patient has disclosed drug or alcohol use within a 24-hour period so when it comes to male versus female exams they're kind of same same but different in a sense that we're going to look over the entire body on both we're going to take photos of the body on both. If there's any bruises, cuts, scrapes, anywhere on the body, we're going to photograph those. We're going to look over the entire body with the woods lamp, which is kind of like a black light and any kind of body bodily fluid is going to light up with that. And but then the difference comes obviously when it comes to the genitalia with the female exam you're going to use a speculum it's just a device that's used and inserted into the vagina to open the vaginal vault so that we can look inside um, look for any injuries and collect swabs there with a male obviously you don't need that Um, we're not inserting anything into the penis we're just you know swabbing the male genitalia as well And then in both instances, you may or may not use an anoscope to look in the rectum and then do swabs of that and do some perianal swabs. Some places do that on everybody, and some just do it based on the history that the patient gives. So then once all the swabbing and photos are done, the urine, blood, and clothing are collected, we as nurses would package the evidence for law enforcement. And so that involves first drying the swabs and then putting them in their respective labeled envelopes and putting those envelopes into a kit and securing it with evidence tape. We do the same with clothing. They go in these designated brown paper bags, and they're also closed with evidence tape. Inside that kit, we would also include a copy of the designated essay form. One would go inside the kit, depending on where you are. There are a lot of different kits out there. Some you would put the form in the actual kit, and some you don't. But then you always want to hand the original copy of the form over to law enforcement outside of the kit. They always, always, always get the original copy. Most forensic units will do pregnancy testing on the female victims that come in on the acute cases. Some will also offer prophylactic antibiotics for chlamydia and gonorrhea. And then some can also offer PEP which is post-exposure prophylaxis, and that's for any possible HIV exposure. And then there would be a rocephid injection and azithromycin pills for chlamydia and gonorrhea. And lastly, I just want to talk to y'all about trauma-informed care because that's something that's so important with forensic nursing, and it's something that we strive to integrate into every single patient that we encounter. So there are five key principles of trauma-informed care, The first one is safety, and that just makes sure that you're ensuring physical and emotional safety for your patient. You wanna make sure that the common areas or any waiting areas are welcoming and that their privacy is always respected. The next one is choice. So you wanna make sure that the patient has choice and control, and so that's why I said, if there's a question they don't wanna answer or there's a part of the exam that they don't want to do, then we always respect that and we just move on. Because the patients are provided a clear and appropriate message about their rights and responsibilities, and we want to make sure that we adhere to that every single time. The next point would be collaboration, and that kind of ties back into choice. But you're making decisions with the patient and sharing the power. You have to make sure that they're provided a significant role in planning and evaluating the services that are being provided. The next one is trustworthiness. So you want to make sure you're being clear and consistent about what you're going to do and respecting the patient's interpersonal boundaries. And then the last point is empowerment and that one's really important you really want to prioritize empowerment and skill building within the patient and make sure that you're providing an atmosphere that allows them to be validated and you want to make sure that they have that with each and every contact that they come across within this process making sure we're using trauma-informed care is extremely important because the patient has already been victimized but making sure that we're using the trauma-informed care can really set the stage for how severe the impact of the trauma can be, and it can also facilitate their healing and recovery process. Once again, y'all, thank you for tuning in to Forensic Nurse Files. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We would really appreciate it if you could take just two seconds to give us a rating. But until next week, y'all stay safe, and we'll catch you in the next episode.